0: Friends, as we continue to worship our God together, let me now invite you to turn with me to that fount of perfect wisdom, the inexhaustible treasures of God's Word. And this morning, as we continue our sermon series in the book of Daniel, we find ourselves in Daniel chapter 6. This is one of the most well-known stories in the Bible, the story of Daniel in the den of lions. It's a story of deliverance. It's a story of faithfulness. But most important of all, it's a story about God's power to save his people. This is the author's intent. You see, in the book of Daniel, we are taught that those who are hostile towards God and his people are like beasts. Earthly kings and kingdoms are beastly and they rage against Christ and his saints. And so the lions in the dens are not the only beasts in the story. There are many, as we will soon see. But the big question we are meant to ask is who is greater than them all? Who has power over them all? Whose purposes are unstoppable? Whose kingdom has eternal dominion? And who is the sovereign king who can rescue his people from death itself? Who can save, as Daniel 6.27 puts it, who can save from the power of the lions? Now to answer these questions, let's look at Daniel 6 verses 1 to 28. and Let's ask the Lord for his help as we approach his word. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would now enable us to behold the glory and the greatness of your saving power. We pray, O Lord, that we would see it so that we might be courageous and defiant in the face of all kinds of evil and temptations. O Lord, strengthen the faith of your people that we might boldly proclaim that yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. Give us the grace to see that the obedience of faith is both risky and costly. and Give us the courage and resolve to see it through. May we do it all for the glory of the one who will raise us from the dead and bring us home to himself. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Friends, when things are going well for you, uh, when things seem manageable and within your control, when the kids are behaving well, when the bus comes on time, when your salary drops into your account regularly, do you sometimes take off your glasses? I don't mean your literal glasses. I'm talking about that biblical lens through which we are all called to view the world. If we take off those glasses, then all we are left with is a godless, humanistic view of the world and our circumstances. This is a common temptation for the believer, for the Christian, especially when things are going well, to forget where true power lies to forget who is really in control we're tempted to be self-sufficient to let down our guard against sin and to neglect that chief exercise of faith prayer now if we do not repent and put our scriptural glasses back on quickly we will find ourselves drifting away from the everyday faithfulness that God has called us to, and we will find ourselves moving toward worldly ambition instead. Now, trials can also have that effect. So often we tend to become discouraged and take off our glasses, giving into the feelings of hopelessness and despair. And at other times, we might decide to do what is safe or best for us, instead of trusting in God's word. But once again, the Lord in these moments calls us to put off our worldly glasses and put on our scriptural glasses, to put on the mind of Christ and to see that our trials are not meaningless or random, but they are ordained by God. They are meant to demonstrate His saving, sanctifying power in our lives. And so we must trust in Him continually. Now, what does all of this have to do with our text this morning? Well, I want you to step into the shoes of the Israelite exiles in Babylon, because they too faced a similar temptation. Just imagine being in Babylon year after year, seeing one horrible king after another, one kingdom after another. You know... If you're in exile, that God has promised you that he will bring you back into the land. But meanwhile, he has called you to resist idolatry in Babylon and be faithful. But it's been so many years, so many years of waiting. What would you do? Would you be tempted to take off your glasses? To forget the Lord's promises? To lose hope? To put your faith somewhere else? Perhaps in yourself? Now, in the book of Daniel, not only does God show his people that he is with them by empowering Daniel to interpret dreams and visions, but he also judges wicked rulers. He judges wicked rulers to remind his people where true power lies. God is the one who sets up and removes kings. It is his kingdom that will never be destroyed. He is able to humble arrogant kings like Nebuchadnezzar and restore them, And he is also able to judge arrogant kings like Belshazzar and destroy them. He is able to deliver Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the burning, fiery furnace. And here in this chapter, we will see that he is able to deliver Daniel from the power of the lions. You see, through the record of these narratives, God wanted those exiles to know that every trial, every ordeal was meant to demonstrate to them that true power belonged to the Most High. He was the one who was sustaining them. And therefore, his message to his people was simply this. God was saying, keep trusting me. Obey me no matter what happens. I have your best interests in mind. And in obedience, in trusting and obeying me, you will find your security and safety. God was saying, remember, it is I who am sovereign over your circumstances. Now, Daniel, in chapter 6, is about to face the greatest trial of his life. Remember, he's in his 80s, probably mid-80s. If you remember, Babylon had just fallen, and it had fallen just as God had said it would. King Belshazzar was dead, and the Medo-Persians had taken over. This happened in 538 BC. If you look at chapter 5... Verse 31, the writer tells us that Darius the Mede received the kingdom. Now, it seems that this Darius, for a short while, was co-regent with King Cyrus, the Medo-Persian king. Darius was sort of a, a, a governor king, until Cyrus, who was fighting his battles elsewhere, decided to later enter Babylon. But until then, now that Darius was in charge, he was in power, he decided to reorganize the power structures in Babylon. Now this was necessary because the only kind of politicians who were there in Babylon were the kind that we met at Belshazzar's party. Remember all of them shady and corrupt and so Darius wanted to put in some checks and balances and so the first thing you must know that Darius does what he does because he has shady politicians and that's the first thing we'll see in this passage there are shady politicians in the empire look at verses one to three of chapter six it pleased darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps satraps were chief representatives of the king so 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom and this tells you that this was a large empire to manage so there was a need for a chain of command And hence you see, verse 2, and over them, the hundred and twenty satraps, three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give an account. Imagine that. So that the king, this was the purpose for that arrangement, so that the king might suffer no loss. Now, this loss is speaking of financial loss. And that tells you that the corruption was rampant in the empire, especially among its leaders. See, there was a reason why Darius set up things in this way. He wanted people to be accountable so that he wouldn't lose money. Now, in whatever position he was put in, given his track record, Daniel worked unto the Lord. Daniel trusted the word of the Lord given through Jeremiah and he labored faithfully. And Daniel has been doing this for for a long time, hasn't he? This is what Jeremiah told the exiles in a letter that he wrote them. Jeremiah 29, verse 7. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. And that's what Daniel did. Not half-heartedly, but wholeheartedly. Even in his 80s. Because he trusted in the Lord's word. Brothers, I wonder if you pursue godliness like this at your workplace. Or are you quick to say, oh, I can't work there because it's too hard or too corrupt. Now, I know that there may be legitimate reasons why you would sometimes need to quit a difficult environment. But my question to you is, do you quit too soon? Brothers, we live in a fallen world and we work for sinners. And most of the time I think it's fair to say given our context that we work for non-Christians. There are certain aspects of work that should not be surprising to us. We know that since the fall work has been made hard as an act of God's judgment on sin. We should also know that God has put enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, between believers and unbelievers. There's bound to be conflict especially in ethical matters. Remember what Jesus told his disciples in John 15 verse 19. He said, if you were off the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So brothers and sisters, put on your scriptural glasses as you evaluate your workplaces. Daniel worked honestly in a corrupt environment and he prayed for the welfare of Babylon. Now you could argue, well Daniel was in exile, he couldn't go anywhere else even if he wanted to. But brothers remember that even if you do change jobs in this present world, you too are in exile, maybe not like Daniel, but in exile nevertheless. Work hard to establish a faithful witness to Christ at your workplace. One that will be remembered even after you're long gone. Look at verse 3. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. The Lord was with Daniel and he was an extraordinary worker. Now if you could ask Daniel, hey Daniel, do you have job satisfaction? I think he would have looked at you very strangely. I think he would have said job satisfaction, have you met the people I work for? Daniel was not satisfied with his job, he was satisfied in the Lord and that's why he could do what he did, faithfully and excellently. Now notice how the writer introduces Daniel in this narrative, this Daniel he calls him. Now we don't know who wrote this but the inspired writer, someone well known to Daniel, clearly wants to leave an account that highlights Daniel's faithful witness. Now, Darius had taken notice of Daniel's integrity, and he decided to do this. Look at the text. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Imagine that. Again, as we look at Daniel's life, it's hard not to think about Joseph. Uh, We're reminded of another Israelite man who was blameless in all his dealings in a foreign land. And like Daniel... Joseph was elevated. He was exalted as leader over the whole land of Egypt. You see that in Genesis 41 verse 40. Now the text says that Darius planned to do this. Not everyone was happy with that plan. So a plot was hatched to get rid of Daniel. And that brings us to our second point. You see a sinister plot in this passage. Look at verses 4 to 9. Then the high officials... And the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. Now you can imagine why these men were envious of Daniel. He had distinguished himself and he was neither Babylonian nor Persian. He was an exile, someone who the king had come to trust and they did not like that. They had to give an account to this outsider. And so they conspired to dig up some dirt on him. Well, surely this man must be like us, they thought. He must have some skeletons in his closet. Let's go look at his browsing history. Let's look at his credit card statements. Let's look at the CCTV footage and see if he's quietly receiving money under the table. Let's look at the the papers, the books. Let's see if he's producing fake receipts to get himself reimbursed. Maybe he's producing the same receipt twice. Let's look at his Facebook page to see if he's been fooling around with women from the other kingdom. But what did they find? Look at the text. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful. And no error or fault was found in him. Imagine that. He was blameless, not negligent not corrupt. Now it does not mean that he was sinless. We know this because in chapter 9 he confesses his sins. No, he's blameless. Daniel is a man who is not open to the charge of obvious wrongdoing. He's not open to the charge of living inconsistently with what he believes. His life is not out of step with his faith. He's bearing the fruit of godly character even in his old age. Brothers, I wonder if such a check were done on you, what do you think the results would be? You know, as a Christian, as one who is trusting in the gospel and striving by the power of the spirit to obey the word of Christ, are you above reproach? Or is your life out of step with the gospel? You know, this is a good question for us pastors to think about as well if our lives are above reproach. Faithfulness is required of us, not just in the pulpit, but even behind closed doors. Faithfulness in the home, the way we lead our wives, the way we speak, the way we parent our children, the way we spend our money, how we respond under pressure. How do we respond if we sin? Do we respond with repentance and faith? You know, of all these things, we will give an account on the last day. Now, these corrupt officials could not find any fault with Daniel until they realized that the only way they could find fault would be to manufacture a conflict, to put him in a position where he would have to choose between obeying God's word and obeying the government, specifically his new employer, King Darius. Look at verse 5. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Now, while these words expose their wicked motives, beloved, I hope and pray that when people plot evil against us, this is what will be said of us. that We shall not find any ground for complaint against these people unless we find it in connection with their written word. Beloved, we ought to expect that the world will afflict us in this way. You know, imagine if Satan had a training manual. You know, the front cover of Satan's operating manual says violent physical persecution. That's in your face. And then the back cover would say tolerance. Tolerance. And between those two covers are many pages of strategy. There's a spectrum of options, of everything in between. Satan comes as a roaring lion to devour believers, but he also appears as an angel of light, giving us good reasons, legitimate reasons, why we should set aside God's word for wonderful humanitarian and social concerns. Beloved, we should not be outwitted by Satan. Put your glasses back on. Do not be ignorant of his schemes. You know, these men were inspired by demonic wisdom to hatch this plot. Now, when I say demonic wisdom, don't start imagining paranormal activity, you know, writhing and bodies lifting off the ground and screaming. No, I'm using that term in the way that the Bible uses it. James says, if you've got jealousy and selfish ambition, that's demonic wisdom. Your antenna is tuned into the wrong frequency and you don't even know it. No, you need someone who is still wearing his scriptural glasses to tell you that your desires, that your behavior is out of step, is out of step with the gospel. You know, these men are inspired by worldly wisdom and they decide to do this. Look at verse 6. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement. So they came as a group. This phrase is repeated three times in this passage. They came by agreement. This is a well-planned Organized effort. They come to the king and and they said to him, "O King Darius, live forever!" All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, are agreed. Actually, that's not true. Daniel didn't agree to this. He was one of the three, wasn't he? We are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance. That's a command, which means that the only proper response to it is obedience. Establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction. Pass a law, a statute, a mandate. That whoever makes petition, that's a request or prayer, to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Notice how idolatry is portrayed in the book of Daniel. The command is not to deny God. No one's telling you to stop believing what you're believing. No one's telling you to worship some grotesque-looking idol with ten hands. No, idolatry in the book of Daniel is grounded in human authority. In human authority. These men knew that they had a proposal that their king would be happy with they knew what darius's idols were they knew what to appeal to oh king darius this is a new government after all and the people are nervous and unsure what better way to secure the loyalty and solidarity of your people than this just for 30 days that's it let them pray to no one except you O oh darius and of course you know if we if we are saying things like this then Surely there must be consequences for disobedience or people won't take us seriously. Anyone who fails to observe the mandate, let's see, what should we do? Oh, here's an idea. Let's throw them to the lions. Now, these men were no fools. They knew that Darius trusted in Daniel. He liked Daniel. And if he, had figured, out, and if he figured out their scheme later, he would do everything in his power to change the decree. So they appeal to his ego and they ask him to put down this law in writing, make the law irrevocable. They want to make Darius powerless to help his friend. Look at verse 8. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. This, of course, was a foolish thing to do on Darius's part. But friends, this is what happens when your idol is power. This is what happens when your idol is power. It will blind you to the needs of others. Darius loved power and his cronies knew that. Beloved, temptations always appeal to what we love. These men appealed what darius loved and he gave in now darius may have been predictable in his sinfulness but there was another who was utterly predictable with respect to his godliness and that brings us to our third point in this passage we see a steadfast prophet look at verses 10 to 18 now the reason i say daniel was a prophet is because he was a prophet is one who speaks for god as as inspired by the Holy Spirit and that's what Daniel does doesn't he he interprets God's prophecies that came in the form of dreams and visions Jesus himself called Daniel a prophet in Matthew 24 verse 15 look at verse 10 when Daniel knew that the document had been signed the most important word there is he knew Daniel was fully aware of the consequences of disobedience he knew That whatever authority and power Darius had, it was given to him by God. He knew that. But he also knew Exodus 20, verses 3 and 5, didn't he? The God of Israel, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he alone is the true God. And he knew that he was called to worship him alone, to pray to him alone, to serve him alone. See, Daniel knew his sufficiency came from God. And so he did this. Look at the text. He went to his house, where he had windows in the upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Now, this sort of construction, upper chamber with windows, this would have been quite common in homes in Daniel's day. But I want to suggest that he prays because this is what faithful Jews did. See, Darius may have written something irrevocable by human standards, but there was something else that was written that Daniel was more concerned about. He was concerned about God's eternal word. You see, in 1 Kings chapter 8, when Solomon dedicated the temple, he prayed to God and he said, "Lord, if your people find themselves in a foreign land and they pray towards your temple where you have put your name, hear them, O Lord, and answer their prayers." You see that in 1 Kings 8:29. That's what Daniel's doing. He's praying according to the scriptures. See, Jerusalem in the Old Testament was the visible symbol of the kingdom of God. She stood on Mount Zion, The city of the great king, God himself. God's presence dwelt with his people in the temple, and his people were to approach him in worship through sacrifices. Daniel, we see, gets down on his knees in a posture of submission, and he prays three times a day. And he gave thanks as he had always done. This would have been in the morning, at noon, in the evening. In Israel, typically, these prayers would have been offered in conjunction with the morning and evening sacrifices. But Notice what Daniel does. There are a couple of things we see here that are instructive for us, and there are a couple of things we don't see here that I think are also instructive for us. Firstly, note this. We don't see Daniel saying, Oh God, what have I done to deserve this? I'm 80 years old. I'm too old for this. Haven't you sanctified me enough? No, what does he do? He gives thanks. What does Daniel know? He knows God's kingdom is coming. He knows that God's Messiah is coming. You see, Daniel has already seen in a vision the completed work of the Son of Man. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. He saw that vision in the first year of Belshazzar. That's already happened. He's already seen that. He knows that God's everlasting kingdom will be here and to him all peoples will bow. Daniel had a sure hope. And his hope was not in a new government. It was not in a friendly king. Not in his vasta with Darius. No, he knew that in Babylon he would always have trials. No, Daniel looked forward to the coming kingdom. He had a steadfast hope and it gave him the courage To endure in his obedience to do what he had always done here's the second thing we can see and learn from we don't see Daniel saying oh this is terrible what do I do what do I do what do I do I don't want to end up as lion food not now I survived Nebuchadnezzar I survived three wicked kings then Belshazzar and now finally when I get a king who actually likes me this happens and the 70 years are almost up, just a few more years, just a few more years, you know what, it's only 30 days. And it's not like he's asking me to bow down to a statue like Nebuchadnezzar did. Maybe, you know, maybe it's okay. Maybe this is not the best time to exercise civil disobedience. Maybe I'll reserve courageous obedience for the time when, I don't know, when, maybe when Darius wants to legalize same-sex marriage. Maybe I'll speak up then. Not for a minor thing, like the temporary suspension of prayer. After all, God is a loving God. He'll understand. Friends, what would you do? What would you do if the government told you? Now, I know this is hard to imagine, but what would the government... What would you do if the government told you, don't gather as a church for worship for just 15 days? I know that's hard to imagine, but just imagine. (laughs) Right? 15 days, that's all. It's for a good cause. But if you disobey our injunctions, you will be fined and shamed and judged in the courts of public opinion and you will be torn apart by beasts who will say like these men. These men pay no attention to you, O king. They pay no attention to the government. Daniel doesn't comply with the king's command. Instead, here's what he does. He defies it. He defies it. Friends, Scripture is clear that we live and work under different spheres of authority. Parents, teachers, pastors, husbands, bosses, governments, these are all from God, but they're all derivative authorities. God is the ultimate authority whose word tells us how each of those authorities ought to behave and function. If the government says that something is good, that needs to be good as defined by the word of God. When any of these lesser authorities forbid what God's word commands, or commands what what God's word forbids, your faith ought to be defiant. You must say with Peter and the apostles, as we heard this morning from Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. See, what mattered to Daniel was not his safety, but worship. Beloved, when a trial like this comes your way, remember that God is sovereign over every trial in our lives. He ordains it all to fulfill His good, redemptive purposes for our lives and for His glory. He has not only called us to the obedience of faith in Jesus Christ, but He also ordains the context for our obedience. And so when a trial like this comes your way, your first response should not be self-preservation, but to consider carefully how you can be faithful. But did you notice how Daniel defies the injunction? Not by doing something new, but by doing what he had always done. How does Daniel know what to do? Well, because he has done it before. He has resisted before. See, Daniel was faithful in the little things. He had said no to the government before, when participating in certain foods meant participating in idolatry. You see, God calls us to be faithful in the mundane. It's the everyday faithfulness that God uses to prepare us for greater temptations and trials. See, Daniel may be in his 80s, but his spiritual muscles have only become stronger. They've become stronger because of resistance training. He has consistently and regularly resisted cultural thinking, resisted pragmatism, resisted ungodliness. He's kept his glasses on, and he can see clearly. See, Daniel doesn't say no to sin once, and then coast along, hoping that God will count that, and then overlook any compromise in the future. No, he saw every one of those trials as meaningful, and now he saw that even prayer, that daily discipline of prayer helped him. Every one of his trials, every day in prayer, every resistance to cultural pressure helped him to prepare for greater trials. You know, one author has so insightfully said, past faithfulness is not a compensation for present unfaithfulness, but preparation for future faithfulness. Beloved, I hope that the last two years have taught us that our sovereign God Controls every virus in the air. It is he who holds the very breath in your lungs. That is the God who calls us to the obedience of faith. Daniel is utterly predictable in his behavior. And so should we. You know, if your friends at work come up with some sinful scheme and somebody thinks of asking you to join them in their rebellion, I hope someone would say, oh, he's a Christian. I know what he'll say. He'll never agree to this. That's the kind of faithful witness we ought to have. When it comes to godliness, we should be so predictable. You know, these government officials who conspired against Daniel knew what he thought and knew what he would do. They knew exactly what he would do. All they needed was proof. Look at verse 11. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel who is one of the exiles from Judah, you know, this only confirms why they were jealous. Here was an exile, an outsider, somebody who always made them look bad. He pays no attention to you, O king. Which was not true. He was being slandered by these men. He pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed. But makes his petition three times a day. He defies you three times a day. Like a pharmacy prescription. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed. He was exceedingly troubled. After all, Daniel was a trustworthy man. And now, by his own foolishness, he had condemned him to death. So he was distressed. and So he does this. He set his mind to deliver Daniel and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. But the officials got a wind of that. They got a wind that Darius was trying his best to find loopholes to save his friend. So they once again come to the king and they remind him of his own law. Look at verse 15. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, know O king that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Notice how resolved and determined these men are to put Daniel to death. And surprisingly, there are no recorded words from Daniel defending himself. You see, the lions in the den are just the supporting actors in the story. The real beasts are these officials, and their lord is Satan. That devouring lion that seeks to destroy the faith of God's people. These men are beastly, abusing their power, while Darius, who craves power, is powerless to save Daniel. Daniel, sorry, David in Psalm 7 verse 2 speaks of his troublesome enemies as beasts. He speaks of his enemy as a lion wanting to tear his soul apart to pieces. When David prophesies of the Messiah's sufferings on the cross, this is how he describes that company of evildoers who scorned him and put him to death. He describes them as beasts. Psalm 22, verse 13, They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening, like a, like a ravening and roaring lion. Or Psalm 22, verse 16, For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Think of that description, wild, vicious dogs, ravenous lions. And that's what these men were. They were beasts. They were after Daniel's life, bringing accusations against him, wearing him down. The apostle Paul knew something of this, didn't he? There was a time when no one stood by his side. All had abandoned him. And then he says this, 2 Timothy 4, verse 17, But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Friends, in all of this, we should learn that in every trial, when you draw back the curtains, when you put on your scriptural glasses, you ought to see that the real battle is between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light between the law of god his word and the law of the medes and persians what will you do will you stand firm as a son or daughter of the new jerusalem or will you fold and compromise as a citizen of babylon will you as the book of revelation so colorfully and symbolically captures this compromise, will you receive the mark of the beast. You know That's what that, that phrase means. It's a symbolic way of describing someone with a compromising character, someone who shows allegiance not to Christ but to all that is beastly and opposed to his word. And after realizing that he could do nothing for Daniel, Darius has no option but to comply with his own law. Look at verse 16, then the king commanded and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. Now, this den is not your typical den. Uh, it's not a cave in a rock. This would have been a man made pit in the ground where lions were kept. The Persians loved to keep lions. They would collect them, they would keep them in pits like these, release them from time to time, and hunt them down for sport. Keeping lions was also a way of getting rid of people who opposed the empire. So throwing to people to the lions served the dual purpose of punishing lawbreakers and feeding hungry lions. So we see here that Daniel is cast, he is hurled down into a pit, and in a desperate attempt to declare his innocence, Darius says, May your God whom you serve continually deliver you. Think of what the exiles would have felt when they heard this. To be thrown to the animals like this was viewed under the old covenant as a covenantal curse for covenant unfaithfulness. In Deuteronomy 32 verse 24, God says to covenant breakers, I will send the teeth of beasts against them with the venom of things that crawl in the dust. You know, Either the Israelites might have thought, why is this cursed thing happening to a faithful man? Or they might have wondered, like Job's friends, if this has come upon him, Perhaps he's been unfaithful in some way. See, Daniel was thrown to the lions. He was delivered to a violent and gruesome death. Look at verse 17. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. This was to prevent anyone from escaping. And the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. So not only is the opening of the pit closed, But it's sealed. If anyone rolled the stone away, they would know, and it would have been considered a capital crime. And while Daniel's enemies were probably rejoicing, Darius was very concerned for his friend. Look at verse 18. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. He didn't eat. No diversions were brought to him, so no entertainment brought to the king, no musicians, no dancing girls, And sleep fled from him now there was also a law among the medes and persians that if a prisoner survived the night in the lion's den till the next day you could pardon him and so darius who's still biting his royal fingernails is really hoping that daniel's god will come through daniel's god who's proven to do who's proven to have done such great things in the past i hope he'll save his servant Will Daniel be vindicated? That's the the big question here. Will he be vindicated? Will he be justified despite the charges of condemnation? And that brings us to our fourth and final point. We see the saving power of God demonstrated. Look at verses 19 to 28. Then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, oh Daniel, servant of the living God. Now that's a term only the Jews would use to describe the Lord. Jeremiah 10.10 says this, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. What does that tell you? It tells you that Daniel and Darius have been chatting about God. Daniel was not ashamed to talk about the Lord to Darius. He knew Darius knew that this is how Daniel addressed the Lord. And so he desperately shouts out to Daniel. Has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? And he gets a response. Verse 21. Then Daniel said to the king, "O king, live forever my god sent his angel and shut the lions mouths and they have not harmed me because i was found blameless before him and also before you o king i have done no harm daniel says that the lord sent his angel and saved him he saved him how by shutting the lions mouths no harm was found on him not even a scratch just as the fire had not harmed shadrach meshach and abednego So the lions had not harmed Daniel. And Daniel says, God did this to vindicate me. Because I did no wrong. Because I was blameless. Beloved, when the government forbids what God commands, and commands what God forbids, whether they do it intentionally or unintentionally, whether they do it with good motives or evil motives, they are the ones who are doing wrong. We must obey God rather than men. When the values and priorities and demands of the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world collide, the message of the book of Daniel is that covenant loyalty to our Savior demands defiant faith. When you say no to an earthly authority that conflicts with the clear commands of scripture, you are doing no wrong! You are doing no wrong! At the end of the day, when all is said and done, the text says, Daniel, meaning God is my judge. It is God's verdict that matters. Daniel says, I am alive because I did no wrong. Verse 23, then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den. He was raised up from the pit. Hence the the phrase, taken up. And no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Beloved, that is the record that's left for us. This was written for the Israelites in exile so that they would be encouraged to endure faithfully, knowing that not only was God sovereign over their trials, not only was his kingdom an everlasting kingdom, but that he was able to deliver his people from death itself. Such was the saving power of God. You see, Daniel was a living testimony. He was a walking symbol of God's everlasting kingdom. I mean, think about it. Kings have come and kings have gone. And Daniel is still standing. He's a picture of the everlasting kingdom of God. Daniel has outlasted all of them. But friends, Daniel does more than that in this story. You see, his deliverance also foreshadows the deliverance of everyone who puts their trust in the Lord. Who puts their trust in the Lord and the good news of his kingdom. You see, the point of the story is not to teach kids to be brave like Daniel. That's not the point of the story. Oh no, it's a story of a true Israelite. One who always trusts in God and who is blameless. One who is tempted and tried but remains faithful. It's the story of a man from the tribe of Judah who is conspired against and falsely accused but he doesn't say a word in his defense. It's the story of a man who is caught while praying and condemned to die alone. It's the story of a man whose tomb was shut with a stone and sealed by the state. And yet at the crack of dawn, the stone is rolled away and he is raised alive. Vindicated by the power of God publicly for all to see. But you've already heard this story somewhere else, haven't you? This is the story of Jesus. You see, Daniel not only is a walking symbol of God's everlasting kingdom, he's also a picture of the coming king this is how the kingdom will be established through the coming messiah that stone that will break every other kingdom and reign forever this is how god's people will be delivered from their sins from their spiritual exile daniel foreshadows the coming messiah the son of god made flesh daniel's deliverance points us to a much greater deliverance and a much greater deliverer in the fullness of time when kingdoms were shifting and corrupt rulers were in control. God sent His Son, who took on flesh and entered our corrupt, sin-stained world in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus was not only blameless, he was sinless. He not only kept God's law perfectly and resisted temptation, no he resisted Satan himself, that great beast that great dragon of old the one of whom Moses says in Genesis 3:1 was more crafty than any other beast of the field jesus came to save people from his sins but he was rejected by the very people he came to save the chief priests and the elders conspired to put him to death and delivered him up to rome who sentenced him to a most violent and gruesome death on the cross but he died in the place of every covenant breaker who would repent and put their trust in Him for the forgiveness of their sins. See, unlike Daniel, who did not die, Jesus actually died. He bore Adam's curse of death in the place of sinners. He was buried and his tomb was closed with a stone and sealed. And on the third day at the break of dawn, that stone was rolled away by an angel and Jesus rose from the dead, alive with the new resurrection body. He ascended into heaven and he reigns to him, has been given dominion, glory and a kingdom which shall not be destroyed. Unlike Daniel who survived the lion's den and eventually died one day, Jesus rose with an imperishable body. He's greater than Daniel and his resurrection proved to all that he was who he said he was and that God accepted his sacrifice and vindicated him. See, his death and resurrection not only crushed the head of Satan, but also secured the redemption of his people. And he inaugurated the kingdom of God. And the good news, dear friends, the good news of his kingdom is that if you repent of your sins and put your trust in him, you will be delivered. You will be saved from perishing. You will be saved from the power of Satan and sin. His vindication will become your vindication through faith. Just as his resurrection says to the world that he is not guilty, so it is with his people. Those who trust in him are justified. They are declared not guilty in God's divine court. Beloved, I want you to see that Daniel's deliverance from death was also a foretaste of the resurrection of Christ and our own resurrection. Because of Jesus, the mouth of the accuser has been shut. Because of Jesus, the mouth of the accuser has been shut against God's children. Just as Jesus overcame death, so will we. When He returns, those who trust in Him will rise from the dead and will reign with Him forevermore. Because of Him, we can now say, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall bring a charge against the children of God? Beloved, this is why we can endure slander. This is why we can endure all kinds of evil because we know the one who is our savior and judge. We can entrust ourselves to him just like Daniel did. And Christ will one day come again to judge the world with perfect justice and we will be glorified. This is our great hope. This ought to be your hope if you have experienced the saving power of God. You know, it's this power, the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit, who abides with every believer. This is the power that sustains us in all our afflictions. Now, friend, if you're not a believer in this Jesus, I want you to consider Him. He is not the private God of Christians. No, He is the sovereign Lord of all. And He calls all men to repent of their sin and turn to Him. Turn to Christ. And you will be forgiven of your sins. and You will receive the gift of eternal life. He is the only one who can save you. The only one who can rescue you from perishing and eternal condemnation. He's the only one who can save you from the power of sin and the power of Satan. But if you reject him, you will perish when he comes to judge the world on the day of his return. See, Daniel was rescued, but his accusers were condemned. Look at the text, verse 24. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused, that phrase literally reads, who ate the pieces of him. Those who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. This is how traitors to the crown were treated in Persia. Not only were they destroyed, but their entire families were destroyed. It's a little picture of that covenantal judgment in the end, all those in Adam will perish. All those in Christ will be made alive and will be with God forever. All of them were thrown into the lion's den. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. You know, some people will say, you know, Daniel survived the nights maybe because the lions were not hungry. Does it look like they're not hungry? see it's not that they failed to eat Daniel because they were not hungry the Lord had shut their mouths these people who ate the pieces of Daniel's were now crushed and eaten themselves and this incident brought glory to the Lord in the Medo-Persian empire look at what Darius does verse 25 then king Darius wrote to all the peoples nations and languages that dwell in all the earth he's addressing everyone in his empire peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel for he is the living God enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. See Darius' decree is very similar to nebuchadnezzar's in chapter 3 that decree after daniel's friends were rescued friends these confessions by these kings at the end of every trial are meant to teach us that no matter what happens god will be glorified god will be glorified but like nebuchadnezzar's confession in chapter 3 darius still sees the lord as the god of daniel He's saying true and scriptural things about him, but he hasn't bowed the knee to himself, bowed the knee to the Lord himself. Friend, I hope you don't leave here this morning with simply lots of information, true information about Jesus without submitting to his kingship in your heart. And then the writer tells us this, verse 28. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Daniel thrived in exile. Why? Because he trusted in the saving power of God. Friends, like Daniel, we too are in exile. And the Lord calls us to put our trust in Him every day, to resist temptation and to remain steadfast in every trial. We are to remember what Christ has done for us on the cross. We are to trust in His Word. We are to lean on the power of His Spirit, look to Him for strength, and walk in the obedience of faith. Stand firm in the living hope that you have. In all your afflictions, remember that the Lord will sustain you through it all. The Lord does not promise to shield every believer from suffering, but he does cause us to thrive spiritually through them, doesn't he? He does all things for our eternal good. He will strengthen us and sustain us. You know, Daniel may have been delivered, but many Christians through the centuries were literally thrown to the lions, and they were martyred. Even now, as I speak, somewhere, some Christian is defying someone in order to obey Christ. They will suffer for it. But they're doing it anyway. Why? Because they trust in their God. They trust in the word of Christ, that the one who justifies us will also one day glorify us. Beloved, in all your trials, draw near to the one who has the power over lions and over death itself. Cling to the word of Christ defiantly. Let's pray. Father, we pray that when the pressures of culture weigh us down, when they make us weary, when trials seem to go on and on, when they are long and arduous, Lord, would you lift up our eyes to Christ. May we remember your mighty arm of salvation. May we put our trust in your sovereign wisdom and power. May we set our hope fully on the glory that will be revealed when Christ returns. Help us, O Lord. Give us the strength that we need to make the tempter flee, to be courageous in our obedience, and to be joyful in suffering. In Christ's name we pray.